Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. This is a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. If you are a first-time visitor with us, please consider filling out one of the visitor cards that you'll find in the back of the pew in front of you. If you've been coming here for a while and you feel that you would like to make this your spiritual home, we would be delighted if you were to decide to become a member. That involves signing the book, before which you take a class, or talk to the minister. We come from a long religious heritage that teaches that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of this heritage that I say let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say our chalice lighting words with me? In the light of truth and in the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Come into this place of peace and let its silence heal your spirit. Come into this place of memory and let its history warm your soul. Come into this place of prophecy and power, and let its vision change your heart. When people ask you, what is this church all about, the one that you're going to, you can say at first, you, you, Austin, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice, and may it be so. I'm going to talk about a Unitarian saint this morning. I don't know if you knew we had saints. Uh, This one is Susan B. Anthony. The reason we call her a Unitarian saint is because after she was raised Quaker in her childhood, um, her father and the whole family moved to Rochester, New York, and signed the book at the Rochester Unitarian Church. The family attended there for many years. Susan is a saint because, like many saints, she was persecuted, ridiculed, jailed. She worked tirelessly for the rights of the powerless. She was intelligent, persistent, fierce, and serene. Everything we admire in our free faith tradition. One of the sources that we draw from in our faith tradition, uh, we draw from many sources. One of the sources is... Words and deeds of prophetic women and men which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. So it is from that source that I'm preaching this morning. And I, I know that um, many people, when preaching about Susan B. Anthony, would end up by saying, and I want us to be just like her, but I, I have to say, I'm not sure we could be, because she had some things going for her that many of us do have, some of us don't have. And so I want to talk to you about those things that were powerful in her development that she had going for her and helped her stay strong through her whole life. Um, Number one was a father who adored her. He made sure that she was educated as much as his sons were. 
Um, she was born in 1820. And Daniel Anthony was very unusual in wanting his daughter to know math and Latin and Greek. Um, Quakers believed that men and women were equal, and women in the Quaker meetings were able to speak and run things the same way that the men were, and women had a say in all the decisions. Daniel Anthony sent his children to the, to the town school until the schoolmaster refused to teach Susan long division. The thought at that time was that women should be taught to read well enough to read the Bible to their children and enough math to count their egg money. And long division was not needed in that kind of a life. So Anthony jerked the children out of the school and started homeschooling them, um, only he didn't do it himself. He hired a teacher to come to his house and school the children. So um, Susan learned everything. The boys learned. They all learned everything. The teacher knew. And so she was very strong in that way, in having a good education and in having a father who treated her as equal to his sons. Um, and her family supported her her whole life. She made money as an organizer and as a lecturer, but that wasn't enough to live on. So her family, her family sent her money her whole life so that she could keep doing what she was doing. Not many people have that. First, she worked in the temperance movement. So a lot of us um, read about the temperance movement, and we think of self-righteous little old ladies with signs saying, you shouldn't drink. But really, um, alcoholism was such a huge problem in the United States back then. Um, the average per capita, per human being, consumption of alcohol before prohibition was seven gallons a person. And women didn't drink. And people of color didn't drink. And the children didn't drink, we think. So this was the men drinking enough so that it was seven gallon per person per capita per year um, consumption of alcohol. And another thing you have to keep in mind was that the men owned everything and ran everything. Um, if the wife wanted a divorce, she had to leave her children behind because the man was always, always awarded custody of the children. So the man had custody of the children. The man had custody of the money. If the woman made any money, it was his. So the paycheck went to him. And if he was, uh, as we used to say in the South, bad to drink, if he... <laughs> If he was bad to drink, he could drink up her paycheck and his paycheck, and nobody would, it, it, nobody could do anything about it all. And uh, beating your wife was not a crime in those days. So if she were to speak up about it and, and try to get her money back or whatever, um, he could beat her up and that would be no big deal. So, and I'm not saying that all men did that. Um, men are lovely and wonderful in this world. I'm the mother of two of them. But some men took advantage of this situation, especially when alcohol was involved, and so it was a terrible problem in terms of abuse of women and abuse of children and poverty of families. Alcohol was a terrible problem. And so the women's temperance movement, temperance means drink moderately, the women's temperance movement um, had more to do with the evils of 
uh, beaten up children and beating, beaten up wives and families in poverty than it did had to do with the immorality of taking a drink. Okay, so uh, Susan worked for temperance, and um, she began also to work in a pu- in what we call a public job. As you heard in the story, she was a school teacher, and the previous school teacher, the man, had made ten dollars a week, and she was paid two fifty a week. Nothing to be done about that either. So um, when the family moved to Rochester and joined the Unitarian Church in Rochester, she was already a working school teacher. When you join a Unitarian Church, you meet people who are going to change your life. And that's what happened to the Anthony family. Rochester was a hotbed of abolitionist activity. The family befriended anti-slavery abolitionists, and former slaves. And so their house was full of an evening of conversation about abolition, of conversation about the ownership of human beings and how immoral that was, of conversation about how um, all of these human beings who were against the enslavement of other human beings could work to make that stop. And that was... um, something that horrified her to hear about the conditions of everyday lives of the enslaved people. And so her family's farm became kind of a center of anti-slavery activity, and she became more and more radical in many ways, along with her father and friends. And so the Quakers asked her to be a paid abolitionist organizer. So instead of teaching school, and she moved into being a paid organizer for the anti-slavery movement, and she would rent halls and uh, hire speakers and publicize the meetings, and she began speaking some herself, but you also have to realize in this day, it was, um, it was against the law for a woman to speak in public to a promiscuous group, meaning men and women. So... But she began speaking just to women's groups, and she was very good at it, and she liked it. And so, you know, you don't have to, in life, you don't have to do everything just because you're good at it. You you can be good at something, and you don't have to do it. But if you're good at it, and you like it, it might be a sign that you should do it. And so she started becoming a public speaker. She spoke at a teacher's convention, and she argued at a teacher that both, as a teacher, that both boys and girls should be taught. And she argued that they should be taught together in the same room, that they could learn equally well and at equal speeds. She said, there's not that much difference between boys' brains and girls' brains. This was a radical thought. Because the doctors of the day, many of the doctors of the day, were teaching that women's bodies only had a certain amount of energy. And if they worked too hard with their brains, it would hurt their reproductive system. They said, any fool would know that. It's the balance of nature. All the energy goes to the brain. Everything else shrivels up. 
And they laughed at her when she said, boys and girls should be taught equally in the same room. And they said, what's next? We're going to teach our dogs and cats to read? That has a familiar ring to it. I'm thinking that people have been using that argument for years. So when you study history, you see how the conservative voices over and over again, especially conservative religious voices, mouth what sounds from here like the most ridiculous claptrap, and the liberal religious voices sound pretty much the same as they did back then. And I know that you all have heard, what's next? We're going to marry our dogs? I wish they'd come up with something new. But be careful what you wish for. And here's the other thing they said to Susan B. They said, and this, is, this happens in every, every movement for social change. Don't scare people off by asking for everything all at once. Be moderate. Be genteel. Don't push too hard. You'll make them mad. I hate to tell you which side of that discussion I have been on lately. I'm embarrassed to say I've been on the don't push too hard side. This is one reason why it's good to read history. Because it reminds you what the right side is. When told to be moderate, Susan B. said this. Now, she is a person you want on your side, but she might not be a person you want to invite to dinner. When told to be moderate, Susan B. said this, Shall I tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm? Shall he moderately rescue his wife from ravishers? Shall a mother moderately pull her baby from the fire where it has fallen in? Well. In 1848, when she was 28 years old, the first women's rights convention was held in Seneca Falls. She didn't go. Local media had called it a hen convention, attended by cranks, hermaphrodites, and atheists. <laughs> I think we have some of all three of those here in this church. Anyway, I won't ask you to raise your hand. Susan was shocked to find out that her father and lots of their friends supported the cause of women's rights. They talked about that alongside the abolition of slavery. Susan heard the brilliant Mrs. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She heard of her and hoped to meet her one day. And when they did meet, they liked one another instantly and thoroughly. It is a picture of the two of them on the front of your bulletin. Elizabeth Cady Stanton looking into the camera um, like she just dares you to say something. And Susan B. looking a little less dangerous, but not being actually less dangerous. They were both friends with Amelia Bloomer, who invented a, 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 um, an outfit for women to wear that would be uh, more modest and more racy at the same time. Uh, an outfit in which women could move, and it was named after her, Bloomers. And um, the women started wearing them for a while... Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B., and Amelia, 
war bloomers for a while, but they stopped when they realized that it was keep, their outfits were keeping people from hearing anything that they said. People were so gobsmacked by the fact that these women were not wearing dresses that they, um, they couldn't hear them. It was a communication issue, so the women went back to wearing dresses. So, um, the sons of temperance also had a powerful uh, group, and uh, women were not allowed to join, but they were allowed to come to the meetings. And there was a, women, a group called the Daughters of Temperance, which was an auxiliary group, separate but unequal. And Susan was a member of the Daughters of Temperance. She was one of their um, most successful fundraisers, and they asked her to represent them at the Sons of Temperance meeting in 1852. And so there was a discussion, and she rose to make a point during the discussion. There was this huge buzz of outrage, and the chair shouted, the sisters were not invited to speak, but to listen and learn. Susan swept out of the room, followed by a few other women. Some of the women stayed behind, disapproving of the women who had left. A few called the women who left bold, meddlesome disturbers. Do we have any of those in the room? Bold, meddlesome disturbers. I think I've fallen in with the right crowd. That very night, Susan rented a hall and invited everybody from the Sons of Temperance Conference to come listen to her speak. The room was cold and badly lit. The stovepipe broke in the middle of Susan's speech. But everybody there was energized and inspired. And they elected to form a statewide convention of a mixed temperance group, and Susan was elected to head it up. Um, she wrote hundreds of letters and speeches. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote speeches for her. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wasn't quite as mobile as Susan B. because she had children and she had a husband and a household to run. Her husband was very supportive, as were her children, and Susan B. would take care of the children while Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the speeches. Henry, her husband, said, you stir up Susan, and she stirs up the world. Their partnership lasted their whole lives, over 50 years. These two women stirring up the world. They thought maybe they could take care of slavery and temperance, women's rights, men's rights, children's rights, all at once just by giving women the vote. That women would vote correctly, they thought, romantically somehow. That women would vote correctly, and uh, the whole world would be a better place if the women could vote. So, um, they started working for that with their temperance group that they had started. They were invited to the next Sons of Temperance convention, and they, they tried to speak again, and they were thrown out again. One um, delegate shouted that they were not women, but some kind of hybrid species, half woman and half man. And the clergyman stood up and said they would not sit with these females. Another man said that they had no business disrupting temperance meetings with their dreadful doctrines of women's rights, divorce, and atheism. They were thrown out bodily. After that happened for the third time, they didn't go back. They said, we have other fish to fry, bigger fish. <laughs> the 
The newspapers would attack Susan B. They would say she was repulsive and ugly, that she couldn't get a man's attention, and that's why she was so hateful. She kept working and kept working for women's rights. She thought that maybe if women could own things, then they could keep their money and they could keep their children and then they could leave an abusive situation. She went from town to town gathering signatures on petitions, enduring snowstorms and ridicules, sleeping in cold farmhouses and inns, going before the state legislatures everywhere she went. In 1860, the New York legislature passed the Married Women's Property Act, enabling married women to own property, keep her own wages not subject to the control or interference of her husband, enter into contracts, and have shared custody of her children. And many other states followed, changing the lives of millions of women. Many of the suffragists in years to come were embarrassed by the radical antics, they call them, of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, if you don't know, wrote a book called The Women's Bible, where she asked very probing questions about Bible stories. Um, the Women's Bible is radical and shocking even today. Harriet Beecher Stowe refused to write for Susan B. Anthony's newspaper because it was called The Revolution. She said she wanted to write for something a little less aggressively named. Until Daniel Anthony's death, Susan B. had his full support. She never married. She never had children. Women's rights, abolition, and temperance were her passions and her life's work. She did vote illegally in the 1872 election. She and a few other women. She was arrested, tried, convicted. Her fine was $100. She said in the courtroom that she would not pay that $100. She said to the judge, because he had spoken to the jury and instructed them to find her guilty, she said, you have trampled underfoot every vital principle of our government. My natural rights, my political rights, my civil rights, my judicial rights are all alike ignored. I will not pay a penny of your unjust fine. As he shouted for her to be quiet and sit down, she kept talking. I shall urgently and persistently continue to urge all women to the practical recognition of the old revolutionary maxim that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. She was bad to the bone. And I think we can learn some things from her. Even if we did not have a great education, even if we did not have an adoring father, even if we do not have uh, a family that supports us throughout our life's work. Number one, here's how you change the world. Trust yourself. What feels wrong to you is probably wrong. Two, get mad. Anger is a good fuel for action. But try, as Aristotle said, to get mad at the right person at the right time. He said, it is easy to fly into a passion. Anybody can do that. But to be angry with the right person and to the right extent and at the right time with the right object and in the right way, that is not easy and not everyone can do it. Thank you, Aristotle. Number three, work to change things. Don't just complain. Posting on Facebook is not working to change things.
four, lean on a friend. You got to have partnerships, relationships, and making change. Five, know how things work. And here's one of the ways they work. First, they ignore you. Then they ridicule you. Then they fight you. Then they agree. And then later they say it was all their idea from the beginning. If you know how it works, when they call you ugly or repulsive, or they say you're not patriotic, or they say you're bitter, or they ask, what's next? I'm going to marry my dog. You know they've been doing this way for a long time. May we be like her in the ways in which it is appropriate for each one of us. Mostly, may we be like ourselves. May we be the giants upon whose shoulders those who come after us will stand. While there is still injustice, while there is still suffering, while there are still brave people to be supported, while there are still hungry hearts, while there are still people whose spirits are weary, we will keep the doors of this church open. We take an offering now to sustain and strengthen the mission of this place, which is sacred to so many of us. It is a place of memory and of hope. We are the keepers of the dream. And now may you go in peace. The times when you feel like a motherless child, may you remember that you have many people who care for you. May you feel surrounded by love and support. May you surround those around you with love and support because we are called not only to have our own lives transformed and our own spirits nourished, but we are called to do that for others. So be blessed, be a blessing. May it be so. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org